Happy New Year. Glad you can join us. Uh, hope you had a great Christmas and, and New Year, whether you're uh, joining us uh, in your Christmas jammies or on the road in a coffee shop. Uh, glad you can join us uh, today. Uh, this is a time of year when we reflect on what was and look forward to what could be. It's an exciting time of year. I mean, for Jennifer and I, this could prove to be an exciting year as we anticipate not one, but uh, possibly two weddings. Um, our oldest son was engaged uh, early December and our youngest just graduated from Kent State and is, is mulling over engagement plans as well. So it's, it's fun to think about what's coming in the next year to anticipate all these different events. But the reality is we really don't know what's in store for us for 2022. And I think we all got a, a real sense of this in 2020 because 2020 didn't start out so bad. Uh, but by March, <laughs> our lives had been radically altered. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I hear it almost every year. Uh, I sure hope this year will be different than last year. Or maybe you hear it in this form, I don't think I could take another year like the last one. And, and I understand that. Uh, we look forward to a new year, a, a new start, a new beginning with fresh hope. But there's a, a the slight setback to all this. Because our problems and issues and circumstances don't always respect the calendar. <laughs> I mean, don't my issues and circumstances know that when I turn the page to the new year, that it should all just disappear, be wiped clean, start all over again? I mean, wouldn't that be great that like a, a giant uh, whiteboard, take everything from the past year and just erase it. Take all the junk uh, from the past year, health issues, broken relationships, financial hardships, bills, debt, illness, stress, anxiety, fear, and grief, and, and just, just erase it. <laughs> Start fresh, put it all behind you, no concerns, no worries. Throw it all away with the old calendar. But it doesn't work that way, does it? Because somebody wrote on the whiteboard with a permanent marker. <laughs> and no matter how hard I try to erase all these things, it's, it's still going to be there. I try to be a, a pretty positive person, but sometimes when I start to, to think ahead, my optimism smashes into reality. So when I hear someone say, I, I hope this year's better than last, I can't help but think, but what if it's not? And perhaps you're sitting there this morning, I hope 2022 is, is, a, is a lot better than 2021. And that's not an unreasonable hope, and I hope that's true. But I also need to realize it's not always in my control. So what do we do? In biblical terms, how do we handle times in our lives when we might find ourselves in a wilderness of doubt, a wilderness of confusion, a wilderness of, of anxiety? The wilderness is a, a place of desolation and, and difficulty and deprivation. And so when we're in it, the question we need to ask is, how can I let God use this in a way that keeps me close to him? So today I want us to look at a man who found himself literally and figuratively in a wilderness and how he was not only able to survive but thrive. 
But I first wanna talk about what does it mean to be in a wilderness? Because how we respond to our wilderness experience can make all the difference in how we live life out this next year. I'm gonna lead us through, through Psalm 63, a, a Psalm of David. If you'd like to turn there or, or turn into your device on your phone or whatever, uh, that's where we're gonna be today, Psalm 63. You can just kinda turn to the middle and, and you'll be close. Uh, we're gonna look at, at what to look for in the wilderness and, and some strategies that the Psalmist David gave us for, for not wasting the wasteland. Then we're going to end our time with uh, extended prayer as we prepare our hearts for the new year. Uh, that's what we see in this psalm. David takes us from the wilderness into worship. That's what we need to learn about being in the wilderness. Your time in the wasteland is never wasted. See, the geography in Israel is a, is a constant demonstration of just how close we always are to the wilderness. The nation of Israel literally sits on the brink of a wilderness. Jerusalem is situated atop a, a mountain, a, a long mountain ridge that reaches around 2,700 feet. And so during the winter months when the clouds are filled with moisture from the Mediterranean and they blow in, they, they drop all their rain and their snow on the western slopes. But there's no moisture left for the eastern slope. In fact, there's parts that only get an inch of rain a year. And so the result is this stark, barren wilderness of Judea. Very few trees, little grass, scorching temperatures. In other words, lots of dust, sand, and rocks. Some of you have, have been to places like this. You can picture it in your mind right now. In Hebrew, I think this is fascinating, the word for wilderness is, is midbar. It's interesting that the root of midbar has the meaning of speak or word. And I think the idea is that God speaks to us in the wilderness. He uses it to to reveal what's really in our hearts and draw attention to himself. We know from the nation of, of Israel's wanderings in the wilderness that God uses it as an, in another way as well. And in Deuteronomy 8, it says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, 40 years, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. You see, for them and for other leaders that God used, their wilderness lasted 40 years. Uh, I think you could say they were, they were wilderness long haulers. <laughs> and some of us have, have been in the wilderness a long time. Some of us have, have had a life of moving in and out of wilderness times. And for some, your wilderness is coming because in this imperfect world, we all spend some time in the wilderness. See, wilderness seasons can be confusing and lonely. Sometimes it's, identify how you, it's easy to identify how you got there. Down paths like diagnosis or loss or doubt or depression. Other times you find yourself in a difficulty or a spiritual wasteland just seemingly out of nowhere. You're making progress, you're making good decisions, and then life takes a left turn and you end up, you find yourself in a wasteland. 
Based on these descriptions, I think it's pretty natural to, to want to avoid these wasteland wilderness experiences at all costs. And yet the biblical writers suggest that the wilderness is expected. And not only expected, but even a necessary part of us walking with God. Even Jesus spent time in the wilderness. Matthew's, Matthew's gospel gives us a, a glimpse of Jesus' wilderness excursion. Jesus' public ministry is launched with this dramatic moment of affirmation. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descend like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I mean, you, th you picture this, you think about it, it's a, a powerful, amazing beginning to his public ministry. And if, if I were writing the story, I'd move Jesus right into his mission, but, but God does something different. Instead, the story takes a left turn into the wilderness. We read, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. One theology professor says the phrase led by the spirit into the wilderness reminds him of the day his parents led him by hand into a hospital ward for a tonsillectomy. <laughs> In other words, the kind of love that wants us to be well is not the kind of love that always leads somewhere easy. So why would the spirit lead Jesus in the wilderness? Why do we sometimes find ourselves there as well? I, I think we can find at least, uh, at least a part of the answer what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, so we do not lose heart, though our out, outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, I want you to think about it. He, he, Paul had been through a lot. Shipwrecks had been left naked. He'd been left for dead. He had been beaten. He says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The temporal, physical hardship that Paul and, and his partners experienced led to an eternal benefit. Their hardships in the wilderness helped them to see past the temporary inferior things of this world to the eternal and priceless things of God which then gave them an, a certain and an undefeated hope. So I have good news. <laughs> I have some good news. It, it can be extremely hard in the wilderness, but your response to the wilderness can actually be to your advantage. Wilderness wanderings create a thirst for God because when he's all we've got, he's all we want. The song David writes, Psalm 63, is just a beautiful and vivid picture of this. David has lost everything, but now he's able to find the only thing that truly mattered, that truly satisfied, and that was God himself. Before David was forced into the wilderness, I believe he was a, a little obsessed with himself, a little obsessed with his own comfort. 
in the wilderness, his, his whole perspective, his whole focus changes. Despite what drove him into the wilderness, his time in the wasteland isn't wasted. Even though he had confessed his sins of adultery and murder, there were still some consequences to, to David's actions, to David's sin. Some of these things were outside his control, yet some of them were a result of his failure to deal with his family's dysfunction. And we don't have time to look at it today, but there's some pretty messed up stuff in, in 2 Samuel 13 and 14 that, that David just simply fails to deal with. And he deals with the consequences. Because as a result in 2 Samuel 15, his own son, Absalom, obtains a chariot and, and some, some horses and 50 men. And he rides around town like, hey, look at me, look at my power. And for four years, he gets up early. He meets people at the, at the city gate and, and resolves their legal claims. The, the passage describes that when people bow down to him, he just he grabs them, takes hold of them, embraces them as an equal. And as a result, the passage says he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So if you talk to one of the men of Israel and you say, hey, what about Absalom? You say, oh, I love that guy. He, he helped me out. He's, he's one of us. And as a result, Absalom grew in popularity and he sets up a rival throne in another city and declares himself king in opposition to his own dad's kingdom. So instead of choosing the fight, David and, and people loyal to him run away into the, into the wilderness. You can imagine, it's a pretty dark day for David. I mean, he was this great, respected king at one time. And now we read these words in 2 Samuel, verse 30, chapter 15. But David continued up the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. His head was covered and he was barefoot. All the people with him covered their heads too and were weeping as they went up. You see, David lost his kingdom. He lost his son. He lost his respect. He lost his power and so much more. This historic setting sheds some light on, on some of the expressions we read in Psalm 63. Uh, better than life, as long as I live, those who seek my life. David's life was, was in danger at the hand of his own son. And I think we need to appreciate the, the emotional pa the passion of this psalm. Read it in color. Separated from everything he loves, David turns to God. I think this is a great lesson for us because what we turn to in the wilderness shapes our hearts. It will shape our hearts. Imagine your own wilderness. Imagine being under the kind of pressure and, and stress that David faced at this point in, in his life. I, I doubt if any of us would be writing songs. And if we were, we'd be taking shots at Absalom or, or crying out for help. And don't get me wrong, there were times David cries out for help. And it's important to know that, that God hears those cries. But here, here in this psalm, we find David worshiping in the wilderness, devoted to God in the desert, longing for God's presence with, with praise and joy and confidence. See, when David's heart is broken, in this terrifying, humiliating moment in his life, what does he do? 
he prays. And not only prays, he, he praises. In fact, this whole psalm is worship to God. He asks for one thing, not protection, not victory, but God himself. Here's the point. There, there are seasons of pain and loss and grief and darkness when nothing is worth asking for but God himself. We will at one time or another for different periods of time with different severity face times when we're lost in a wilderness. It may not make sense. It may be humiliating. It may hurt. It may seem like there's no end. There's no hope. There's no exit from the pain. But how we respond makes all the difference because wandering, wilderness wanderings create a thirst for God because when he He's all we've got. He's all we want. David lost everything, but now he's able to find the only thing that will truly satisfy God himself. As a result, David writes this beautiful, well-loved psalm. In fact, it's recorded in the early church. It was sung. It was to be sung every morning as a reminder of our need for and our satisfaction in God. So I don't know what 2022 has in store for us. I do hope that it's a better year than the year before and, and the year before that. <laughs> Regardless, our greatest need is God. And the best thing we can do is worship. Psalm 63 says a Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. You God are my God. Earnestly I seek you, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lifts, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. When we understand the essence of worship to be a genuine longing for God, it becomes the very centerpiece of life. It becomes radically God-centered. It becomes intense, passionate, and thoughtful. I think the problem is, though, is we live with so many distractions. So many things pull at us. Never before have we had so many things competing for space in our lives. But like a kid at Christmas time, who's, who's already counting the days to, to next Christmas, he, whose mind is filled with possibility, who, who dreams of Christmas morning, uh, what might be under the tree, what are the possibilities, who talks about and sings about Christmas weeks, months before the celebration. Like that child, whatever fills your heart will lead your life. What fills your heart will lead your life. And so today, the question is, what fills your heart? 
What gives you joy? What are you passionate about? What, what gives you energy? What gives you hope? What gives you strength to endure the unexpected problems of life? What can you cling to even when the bottom falls out? What fills your heart? If you've never read the book, uh, it's much better than the movie. <laughs> but the book, uh, Unbroken, I, I would highly recommend it. It's a biography of, of Louis Zamperini. He was, a, he was an Olympian and a war hero. He ends up being captured and tortured by the Japanese during World War II. But later, after saying yes to Jesus, he returns to Japan to tell his tormentors that he forgives them. It's just an incredibly powerful story of endurance and discipline and grace. At one point in the book, his, his B-24 crashes into the Pacific Ocean and he spends the next 47 days, 47 days, fending off sharks, starvation, and dehydration in, in a little life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So I want you to imagine this. Think about a man stranded out in the open sea, floating on this, this small rubber raft, surrounded by undrinkable water, dying of thirst. His lips are cracked, his skin is crusty and dry and burnt. He's, he's weak, his muscles are cramping. At that moment, what do you think his greatest passion is? I don't think he's interested in the latest reality TV show. He's not concerned about the college football championship. He's not worried about the weather, what's happening in Washington, or his financial portfolio. He's not dreaming about his car. He, he has one thing on his mind, one thing, water. He has to have water until he receives it. Nothing else matters. And I think this is exactly where the writer of, of Psalm 63 was, both physically and spiritually. David's in this dry, barren wilderness, running for his life. His body aches for some kind of refreshing liquid, yet the deepest thirst of his soul, of his life, was for the living water. He yearns for God. He wants God for who God is. He's passionate about knowing and living for God. He wants his life to be saturated with God's presence. Reading again from verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. You see, David desires to be saturated with God's presence. And in the midst of such dark circumstances, he goes to God first, crying out, you, you God are my God. My God. He has this personal connection with the Lord. And again and again throughout the psalm, we see this pattern. We see it in the other psalms. When, when he was afraid, Psalm 56, in God I trust, I will not be afraid. When he's lonely and frustrated, Psalm 22, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away? But he concludes, from you comes the theme of my praise. They who seek the Lord will praise him. When he needs comfort, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I, I shall not be in want. 
When sadness overwhelms him, Psalm 42, put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And again and again, we see this pattern in David's life because what fills your heart will lead your life. And rather than allowing his emptiness and distress to move him further from God, he uses it to drive him to God. Let God saturate your life. You think about to to saturate is to soak, to fill to the point where where there's nothing left to fill. There's nowhere else for the living water to go but to, to flow out and around your life. God wants us to give him access to every part of our lives. So he can saturate it with his presence, with with his love. I was thinking about this. Have you ever had someone over to your house and they have kids and as the adults are sitting at the table talking, you notice their kids are starting to open doors that you had purposely shut? (laughs) And not only that, they start taking stuff out of your cabinets and, and drawers and you wait for the parents to say something, but they're not seeing it happen. And you just feel like saying, hey, kids, stop it. That's not your stuff. That's none of your business. Get out of there. I think, isn't that what, isn't that what we try to do with Jesus? See, we, we invite him into our lives, but then we deadbolt certain doors to keep him out of certain rooms. But Jesus gets up from the table and (laughs) he has the nerve to start wiggling doorknobs and and opening drawers and cupboards and and it it starts to make us uncomfortable and maybe even a little angry and we feel like shouting, hey Jesus, that's not your stuff. That's none of your business, that's my personal life. Get away from there. But you know what? When we say yes to Jesus, we're saying yes to Jesus in every part of our lives. Not just the parts we've tried to clean up. Now here's the thing, <laughs> he's not satisfied just opening doors and, and re- reorganizing your junk drawer. <laughs> no, guess what? The master is going to want to rearrange your furniture. Well, what happens when you start rearranging furniture? I know this doesn't happen in your house, but but it does in ours, that you start rearranging the furniture, it starts to reveal weeks and months of dust. Popcorn kernels and pens and pencils and loose change and, and crumbs. And when Jesus starts to move the furniture around, it reveals even more messes that we had forgotten about. So we're afraid he's gonna mess with our lives. He's gonna mess with our messes. But what he really wants to do is to fix and redeem our messes. Here's what we need to realize and why David uses his fear, his loneliness, his discouragement and messes to drive him to God. Jesus didn't come to hurt, but to heal. Jesus wants to saturate your heart with his presence, his love, his holiness, because he knows that what fills your heart will lead your life. Those areas where I've had the biggest messes, where I've been the most broken, are the areas where God's grace is so much more evident. It's in those areas where he's done the most work. In verse 8, David said, my soul clings to you. David's holding on to God with everything he has. 
An older translation says it this way, my soul follows hard after you. It literally means to, to, to stick fast. But we don't have to do this on our own. Look at the last part of this verse, your, your right hand upholds me. We cling to God, but God's already been holding us in his powerful right hand. Reminds me of what Jesus said in John 10. He says, I give them eternal life and they shall not perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. In other words, allow your emptiness, your fears, your anxieties, your frustrations, your discouragements, your joys and, and desires to drive you to him. Because God wants to saturate your life with his life-giving presence. You see, the result of saturation is overflow. This, this constant supply of Jesus living in me overflows into every area, every relationship I have. What fills my heart will lead my life. Let it be Jesus. God was David's go-to in the wilderness because of all the things that, that David was, a, a husband, a father, a king, a, music, a musician, a, a poet, a warrior. Of all these things, at his core, David was a worshiper. You see, worship will help you in the wilderness. David writes earnestly, I seek you. I've, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. This word translated seek earnestly is related to the word for dawn. And so some translations have early, I will seek you. And the idea is we're to make, we're to make much of God, seeking God a priority, a first importance, the first thing we do. How much do you desire to know God? Not just, not just knowing about him, but to truly know him by spending time with him, by reading his story, reading his word, talking to him in prayer. You see, that, that's regular worship, and that, that regular worship will make all the difference when you become lost in the wilderness. David had walked with God for years, but he thirsted for more. David had beheld God's power and glory. The, the essence of that word behold is, is, is to gaze, to fix your eyes intently on something. David had watched God over the course of his life through his creation, through his faithfulness and deliverance and his provision. And now when everything is dark, his vision is obscured because his world's been turned upside down. Rather than complain about God, he goes to God. And see, it's our regular worship that prepares us for the crises that, uh, that we experience in our life. What life does to us depends on what life finds in us. David had in him a deep love for the Lord, a desire to please him, because David fixed his eyes, his gaze on God's power and glory, paid attention to it in regular worship, recognized it in creation, watched God work in and through him. He knew God, and it helped him in the wilderness. You see, when you're in the wilderness and all you can do is complain, that too will shape your heart. You see, it's easy not to be thankful about anything, to, to grumble about everything when we can't see a way out and we're stuck in the middle of the wilderness. 
But complaining is an outward sign of the inward state of the heart. It, it reveals whether we're truly allied with God. That being said, there's a difference between complaining to God, which can actually be an act of worship, and complaining about God. Complaining to God is, is offering to him your, your situation, but trusting in his, in his goodness, continue the, continuing to trust his faithfulness to see what's best for you. And the truth is you shouldn't be afraid to bring your hurts and disappointments to God in prayer. Some of the most potent psalms are laments, complaints, or cries of, of disappointment and anguish. However, when we complain about God, then we begin to question his faithfulness. faithfulness. We, we question his goodness. And these things can actually begin to erode our faith. You see, complaining rewires our brain so that it becomes a habit which fills our mind with toxic thoughts and we start to build highways of negativity. And we no longer see or trust God's goodness and, and we get into a rut of discouragement. You know what a, by the way, do you know what a rut is? A rut is a, is a grave with no ends. Corey Tenboom, Holocaust survivor, said, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look to God, you'll be at rest. Let's listen again from verse 3. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. Listen, I, I will glorify you. I will lift up my hands. I will be satisfied. I will sing and praise. I will remember you. I will cling to you. I will sing secure in who you are. There's so much here. But one last thing before we pray together. David says, your love is better than life. The word for love is, is chesed, which means a, a loyal, a committed, a, a faithful love. God's love is unchangeable and steady. It's rock solid. And so David isn't exaggerating when he says, whatever life you've chosen, whatever you've given yourself to, whatever your obsession is right now, whatever wilderness you find yourself in right now, God's love is much better. Our lives can be lost, but God's love is forever. Sounds like what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor debt, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's God's love. It wasn't cheap. Jesus gave his life for, for our peace with God. He defeats death so that we can have life now and forever. And it's this love that sustains and satisfies when we find ourselves in the wilderness of difficulty, doubt, or worry.
Jennifer and I have been hiking and backpacking. There's been a few times where uh, we've run out of water and we're in the middle of nowhere. It's a terrible situation to be in, but when you finally get to water, whew, it's so satisfying. Some call this the psalm. This psalm is the ah, <laughs> of a thirsty man who's taken his first gulp of water. Someone has said when we sing and cling, we can handle anything. Around Thanksgiving, I, I read a post from a, a pastor who had a seizure on Thanksgiving Day in front of his six-year-old daughter. It was a scary time. Later, he was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And just like that, his life turned upside down. Plan plans changed. Dreams changed. His life took a left turn and ended up in the middle of a wilderness. I, I want to read what he wrote this past Thanksgiving after several surgeries and several rounds of chemo. He says this, I, I said recently in a sermon that life is full of seasons and not one season gets to define you, but all your seasons will shape you. I'm sorry if this year <clears throat> giving thanks feels impossible. If you look around and all you see is loss or have a gnawing emptiness that feels like you won't ever get free from, we've been there. The thing about seasons is they do eventually change. The winter might be longer than, than we feel we can bear, but spring is coming. You can take joy today in the reality that you've not been forgotten nor abandoned. You're not under wrath, but mercy. Take joy in that reality. Joy and happiness are not the same thing. Today doesn't need to be happy. In fact, it might be full of lament, of sadness. Joy transcends our circumstances, though, and is rooted in what is true about God and what he says about us. That's what worship in the wilderness looks like. Even in the wilderness, in my pain, my fear, my confusion and worry, Lord, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. And when praise fills my heart, it leads me to God whose love is better than life. I just want to take some time today to pray for us to pray together in this new year. One, you may be in a wilderness now and, and time, things Things look bleak. It feels like life is just a bunch of dust and rocks. You may be entering to a, into a wilderness and right now, you're just like, I'm not prepared. I'm not ready for this. I'm scared. Or maybe you've just come out of a wilderness and, and life is going, going okay. So then the question begins, how becomes, how do you continue to grow and come alongside others? So I just want to spend some time in prayer, and I just ask you to pray in the quietness of your own heart, praying right from the psalm. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you for David's heart. I thank you that in the midst of the wilderness, Lord, he's, his thirst is to be in your presence, to know you. And we read, I, I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. 
I just uh, ask you to take some time right now to think about, recall how you've seen God's power and glory. Take some time to gaze upon his character, to behold his holiness, to gaze in his love, always near, never failing. Take that time right now. Lord, we, we thank you, not just for all that you've done for us and are doing in our lives now and will do in the future, but Lord, simply for who you are. May we gaze upon your character and know you. Help us to see you. Help us to see you at work in our lives, to see your fingerprints. Help us to be sensitive to the way that you're working in our lives. David continues, I, I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Just make this your prayer as well. Lord, help me find my satisfaction in you. Help me to be content in you. Forgive me for defending for depending on, on, on inferior things. Forgive me for, for drinking from mud puddles when the author of life is offering me living water. Just give those things to him this, today. Father, I thank you that you promise that you will forgive us our sins when we confess them to you. Lord, just thank you for that forgiveness. Thank you for your grace. Lord, help us to depend on you, to find our satisfaction in you. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Father, thank you for holding us. Help us to trust you in, in, the, in the things that we're facing right now, the things that we're worried about, the things that we're fearful of, the things that we're dreading. If you would, just give that to him right now and say, Lord, help me to, help me to cling to you knowing that you're holding on to me through this event, through this situation, through these circumstances, and just give that to him right now. Father, thank you that we can trust you in all of these things. Thank you for holding us. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. Lord, thank you.
I just pray that the cry of our hearts this, today, this morning, would be as David cried out, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Father, that's our prayer today, that we might seek you and know you and stay in regular worship with you as you continue to hold on to us. Lord, we love you too, and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.